The Bowdoin Presents podcast addresses current topics being considered in our classrooms, around our campus, and across culture and society. Guests feature subject matter experts, including alumni, faculty, students, and staff, in conversation with me, Lisa Bartfai. Kate Dempsey has served as the State Director of the Nature Conservancy in Maine since 2016. Before that, she led the organization's public policy initiatives in Maine, first as Senior Policy Advisor for Federal Affairs, and then as Director of External Affairs. Kate holds an undergraduate degree in government and sociology from Bowdoin College and a master's degree from Tufts University's Department of Urban and Environmental Policy. She worked in Washington, D.C. for the Friends Committee on National Legislation, and she ran a public health campaign for the city of Cambridge. Soon after, she joined the office of U.S. Representative Marty Meehan as Economic Development Director and then District Director. Moving back to Maine in 2000, Kate worked as Economic Development Director for U.S. Representative Tom Allen. Welcome to Bowdoin Presents. Thanks, Lisa. And Tom Allen is also a Bowdoin graduate. So, you know, twofer on this one. (laughs) Moving on from your Bowdoin time, you then worked in policy and politics in D.C. and Maine. And now you're with a big national conservation organization. Can you walk me through like how and when you realized that these two paths, politics and environmentalism, could be combined? You know, it's interesting, Lisa. When I left Bowdoin, um, you saw my degree was in government and sociology. And I've always been very interested in human communities and how uh, people have have voice in a variety of different ways. So whether or not they can create community development organizations or help start movements. I went to a program for graduate school that was urban and environmental policy. And I was kind of skeptical. It was the early 90s. Environmentalists were very um, focused on, you know, big conflicts like the spotted owl in Oregon and whether or not people could still work in those forests and it was a it was an either or black and white conversation I found myself in a lot and when I w- went into the congressional office what I began to see is that it's not an either or conversation that communities of people particularly I was working in Lowell and Lawrence so with a lot of disenfranchised and poor communities And I began to see how central a healthy environment was to their lives. And so really, it wasn't until I was a bit older where I became able to more integrate the things that I learned that I cared about. So a healthy planet and healthy neighborhoods, to me, became synchronistic. Continuing a little bit with like the democratic processes and and working in the district and working from the ground up, I mean, if you've been in politics and really seeing the inner workings of that, you know that there's certain built-in slowness to how the democratic process and wheels are turning. And, you know, by design, we have certain checks and balances and procedures. But given how acute the climate crisis is, do you think it can be solved or even adequately addressed uh, within our current slow-turning democratic processes? I do think you're right that the challenge of the U.S. democratic process, whether it was 20 years ago or today, 
is that it is definitely going to be a world of compromise. These bills that Congress are working to pass and even the budget bills of the last that ended the last administration actually have a ton of ability to act on climate change. One of the things we often focus on are the bills that are called like a climate action bill. And in fact, Congress is so complicated that what I learned was knowing the different ways to insert things that you're working on, say fluorocarbons and get reducing those. You know, there's ways to insert that stuff into bills and have that vehicle move. And that doesn't become the very focus. But yeah, I mean, democracies are wicked slow um, and it's super frustrating at times. And, you know, what we at the Nature Conservancy have really focused on for the last six or so years is um, looking at other social movements and applying that to climate action. One great example is the marriage equality movement in this country. What we saw with marriage equality, again, is like resistance, 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 slowness, and there was nothing going to happen at the federal level. And then states started taking action. What that does is actually does create a groundswell when more states, the majority of states start acting. For one, the Supreme Court may say, oh, this, this is really the majority. Congress or Obama in that case may change their minds because they're seeing a change in all these states. You know, the young people like the people at Bowdoin today, they're seeing a different world than people like me. Marriage equality is a given in their lives. And it was not a given in my life. And so it's just so interesting to reflect back. And so by using the models of the civil rights movement, of the women's movement, of marriage equality, if we can organize at state level and then influence in towards Congress, um, I do think we can start, we are seeing change as a possibility. Compromise serves durability I don't always think it serves getting to where we need to get with a crisis like climate as fast as we need to get. I mean, we have to move fast now, and we have been stalling for a long time. So notice I didn't give you an answer because I worked out. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I noticed that there's some hesitancy around the fact that maybe democracy is too slow or American democracy today is too slow in responding. So then the obvious follow-up question has to be, Will we have to have some kind of green authoritarianism to curb this trend of increasing carbon emissions, deforestation, mass consumption, and this rampant use of fossil fuels? I hope not. I think the bigger question is, is the way that, our, that America has been built for the last 200 plus years um, is designed to not serve a big number of people? And our corporations, the Nature Conservancy works with a ton of corporations. We're a multinational organization. We think we have the breadth and width to influence them. And they've got a profit margin and we don't. And so I think that's something that we will as a society need to confront because if profit is the answer, then we're not going to have 
a green revolution or whatever kind of change you're seeking. It sounds kind of cheesy, but (laughs) I'm going to say it anyway, which is what I am seeing more and more is that communities just right here in Maine are seeing that climate action on the ground in their communities is making a big difference in their lives and their daily lives. It means that maybe their children can stay in Maine to work um, in renewables or other industries. It means that they might be able to stay in rural Maine because they can afford to not have oil heat, et cetera, et cetera. I'm much more hopeful than I guess that question suggests. There's... (laughs) There, I'm, I'm hopeful because I am seeing a shift in the dialogue. And so I don't think we'll have to be authoritarian. So let's talk about the uniqueness, you know, uh, of the American history. And um, one thing that your organization has been part of and a steward of are public spaces and uh State parks and national parks been been instrumental in buying parcels of land and converting them into state national parks. But our national parks are some of our first and biggest sites of conserved landscapes that are made available for public use. And they also have some profoundly undemocratic past. I'm sure you've read Dr. Spence's book on uh, dispossessing the wilderness, where he outlines some of these processes of of how making these public and protected spaces also were founded on other people's exclusion. And so we we have that tragic history. And then there's also later on Jim Crow laws that made it impossible for African-Americans to stay at hotels or use gas stations, which made trips to, you know, remote park areas just impossible. Given all this baggage, all this history, can the national parks ever be democratic and inclusive spaces? The national parks were founded on dispossession. America was founded on moving people away from their lands in Maine as the first place. So what we here in Maine at the Nature Conservancy in Maine have been focused on most most recently, I'd say in the last five years, is I believe, we believe that we need to understand and acknowledge the history that we have been part of. And it is by learning what we are part of, I hope that we can then become much more available to see nature in ways that may be different to the historic U.S. vision of wilderness, which did mean that people were not in that space So that's something that we've really been grappling with and really examining our assumptions about where to protect and what to protect. So one example is um, this group of conservation organizations called First Light here in Maine. The Passamaquoddy tribes came to a group of us and said, we would like help acquiring a parcel of land that was um, in the original treaties um, and was never transferred to them. And so the land, an island was, an inland river island was up for sale. And we, at again, this is their story, not ours, and I don't mean to make it about the Nature Conservancy, but we worked with them to make sure they, our skill set is, 
is acquiring those parcels. So we use our skills at their request to, to line up the purchase and fund the purchase so they could own it. So it is now theirs. We centered their voice, their story, and their reclaiming of the land. And there is a big, as you reference, a land back movement across the U.S. and Canada. And people define that in all different ways. And one of the ways is working with organizations like ours and I believe the national parks and um, to figure out ways to make either direct transfers or open up access in ways that we never thought of before. I'll pause, but then, uh, you know, for example, in Maine, birch bark, while it still is here, um, before the climate changes too quickly, um, birch bark is very important to our Wabanaki friends and neighbors. And access to birch bark means going, you know, perhaps harvesting on lands that we traditionally, the Nature Conservancy may not harvest normally or we have something in our deed that says no harvesting of this land. We have to look at ourselves and say, is that practice we should continue or should we adjust now that we know our history? So that brings us sort of to to wider geography here and not just rural geographies, but also sometimes urban. And that makes me wonder about how this older conservation movement that you're organization is part of. Meet today's BIPOC-led environmental justice movement. Where did the two meet and where did they differ? What we have prioritized in our history is protecting biodiversity. That was our mission. That's what we did. Typically, if one, that's places where people aren't. Um, And so recognizing that a healthy environment is also important to places where people live is something frankly we were we are slow to we were slow to understand and that is changing it's another thing that we all you know I wish could change fast enough and I think the big lesson I continue to have to learn is when you are in a position of power which the Nature Conservancy is influential in many different ways, and politics is one of them. Um, When you're powerful, it's really easy not to listen, (laughs) right? And it's weird being a woman in my 50s because people didn't used to listen to me. I'm not saying it's the same. And as a white woman, and like, oh, now I'm the boss. So people have to do what I say, which it's not really how I work, but... (laughs) um, but can I, can I pause long enough and the pause, whether that's years of process and partnership or is it just shutting up in a meeting? <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you if you could help me work through a very practical and real question that I was faced with along with all other main voters, which is um, the CMP corridor whether to approve or deny the proposal for a 142-mile-long corridor stretching through northwestern Maine that would uh, bring clean hydropower from Quebec to Massachusetts. And it's clear that it, it would interrupt some habitats in Maine's northern woods, but it would also help Massachusetts reach their carbon-neutral energy goals, a goal that Maine has yet to set for itself, much more ambitious than the Maine environmental standards currently. And in a situation like this, where conservation and climate change are really pitted against each other, how can a person like myself, 
a layperson and someone standing there at the ballot box, how can I think about this? How do I make a decision? First thing I'll say is everything is more complex than it maybe, I don't know if than it used to be, but certainly in my life, everything's more complex than it used to be because everything is integrated. Here's one example. The Nature Conservancy in Massachusetts worked on that renewable portfolio standard that you just described. We as an organization are pro uh, speeding up the siting of renewable energy. Let's focus on how it is sited, where it is sited, and creating, you know, in our democracy, a, re- a system which accounts for the nuances. To your question of what do people do in the ballot box, I'm not going to answer that for them. It gets back to your original question about democracy. Do we believe that the government that we have in place is kind of watching the store closely enough? Because the thing that I worry about is, um, <laughs> it's, it's really getting back to your other question also about frontline communities. Um, you know, we are drilling oil in this country still, fast and furious, and people are being poisoned by it in their backyards. And, you know, for me personally, I got I to gotta heat my house. I got to turn the lights on and we're going to have to make decisions. And it can't be just because I don't like looking at it because we've been poisoning our neighbors down, down south for a long time with the oil industry. So... When you buy a parcel of land or set it aside for conservation and for public use, how do you think about what those uses are? Because sometimes some of those uses collide with other people's uses or other kinds of uses, not just people's. Is there a democratic way that we can ensure that one or many uses can be combined? People may fully disagree with me on this one, but um, under the Obama administration, um, I'm actually going to go out into the ocean. You know, there was a proposal to have essentially a, a monument designation in the ocean. Um, we didn't take a position for or against it. And we said the, the challenge with like a monument designation, though it kind of helps get us to our goals, right, of protecting nature, <laughs> it's being done from a top down instead of bottom up. And I believe, again, that change does come when all of us can, you know, put our shoulder in and say, this is my knowledge, this is your knowledge, how do we get that and figure out a path forward? So, so I, we push really hard on um, processes that start to much better take a variety of perspectives into account. Um, you know, my mission is to reduce emissions from, from, you know, reduce climate emissions, help us all adapt, human communities adapt to the impact of climate change through nature, using nature, and to protect biodiversity for its own sake and for our sake. Um, and so I think that is most durable when those communities that we've been talking about, whether they're in Louisiana or in Port Clyde, Maine, when when we have a voice in that, the outcome in the long run will be more durable and better, I think, 
because it's more, it's got more perspectives in it. This has been such an interesting conversation, Kate. Thanks so much for coming on Bowden Presents. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be here.